fourth episode of the Drynet podcast series, Good Food for a Better Normal. In this episode, Professor Annette Cowie provides insights into how we can achieve the ambitious global goals related to the sustainable management of the climate, biodiversity and the land in more synergic ways, whilst also ensuring adequate food supplies for humanity. This podcast explores the complex systems that sustain life on the planet and put foods on our tables, challenges some of our preconceptions and shares insights about how we can do better to leave a positive legacy to future generations. We hope that you enjoy listening. If you find the podcast worthwhile, share the link with your colleagues, friends and family. Professor Annette Cowie is the Principal Research Scientist Climate at the NSW Department of Primary Industries and Adjunct Professor at the School of Environmental and Rural Science at the University of New England. She has a background in soil science and plant nutrition with a particular interest in sustainable resource management. Annette is task leader of the International Energy Agency Bioenergy Research Network, Climate Change Effects of Biomass and Bioenergy Systems and Land Degradation Advisor on the Scientific and Technical Advisory Panel of the Global Environmental Facility. Her current research focuses on sustainability assessment and greenhouse gas accounting in agriculture and forestry, investigating key aspects of soil carbon dynamics and biochar processes, and life cycle assessment of forestry, bioenergy and biochar systems. Good morning, Annette, and welcome to our podcast. Annette, the relationships between climate and land are deeply intertwined, as was highlighted in the IPCC special report on climate change and land. Much attention has been given to creating or enhancing synergies between the goals of the climate, biodiversity, and desertification conventions with respect to the land. The land is also said to be central to achieving the SDGs. In this context, tell me about that relationship between land and climate and how land can contribute to the goals of the conventions and the SDGs. Yes, the land really is central to achieving our goals, the environmental goals of the conventions, but also the broader goals that come in in the sustainable development goals. Uh, Because there is this very tight relationship between climate and the land. Um, Land degradation involves loss of soil carbon, which contributes to climate change. And climate change is definitely a pressure on the land, um, leading to uh, increases in soil erosion, for example, with more intense rainfall. And obviously the effects of drought are very severe on the land. Um, But in fact, this close relationship between the climate and the land is also good news because it means that if we pay attention to the land, if we manage our land sustainably, then that contributes to climate change mitigation. And uh, at the same time, when we sequester carbon in the soil and contribute to that mitigation, we're also building soil organic matter, which is really important for sustaining the land resource base. So what we do when we're paying attention to the land is that we're building the natural capital and that allows us to continue to provide the ecosystem services that come from the land. So that's land productivity for production, for food security, but it's also sustaining our natural systems. So it's very important for biodiversity as well. And because it's so important for productivity, it's about sustaining livelihoods too. And that's why we say that the land is is central to achieving the, the convention's goals and also all of the SDGs. Thanks, Annette. Um, 
In the context of the UNCCD, land degradation neutrality has been adopted as a lead strategy to achieve SDG 15, life on land. In the context of LDN, how can sustainable land management enable us to achieve synergies between climate and land and also enhance food security? Yes. Um, land degradation neutrality is a new initiative that uh, was proposed by the UNCCD, having realised that um, despite people being aware of the importance of the land and the existence of many programs supported by the UNCCD, the land condition around the world was continuing to decline and we needed a new approach. And so that, that new initiative is called Land Degradation Neutrality and it is, um, besides a program of the UNCCD, uh, it's also one of the Sustainable Development Goals, uh, Goal 15.3. Um, the whole concept of LDN is that we're trying to maintain or enhance that natural resource base that I was speaking about before because we know that there's ongoing pressures that are going to cause inevitable land degradation. Um, so that could be things like expanding um, settlements that are going to take land out of production. We're going to have those pressures and those that sort of development that is going to cause some losses of productive land. And we need to take into consideration uh, the practices we're applying and the plans we have for infrastructure development, for example, and we need to intentionally reverse land degradation on parts of the landscape that are already degraded so that on balance there'll be a, a losses will be equaled by gains so that we'll have no net loss of productive land. And that's uh, an initiative and, and a target that's applied on a national basis, but it needs to be also applied, for example, on a catchment scale because we need to make sure there's not going to be a trade-off between the more productive parts of the landscape and, and other places that, that may be less productive or between one type of habitat and another. So we're, we say that the, um, the balancing needs to occur within land of the same type. And... Uh, there are three strategies for achieving land degradation neutrality. I've talked about reversing degradation on some of the degraded land, but in fact, most of the attention needs to be paid to avoiding degradation and reducing degradation. And that's where sustainable land management comes in because uh, converting from unsustainable practices to more sustainable practices are going to, is going to um, help to reduce the pressure on the land. So it's going to reduce the rate of land degradation. And that's what's going to be able to maintain productivity of the land. I was talking about the importance of soil organic matter, for example. And that's one of the key strategies of sustainable land management is building and enhancing soil organic matter. And that is so important to maintaining land productivity and therefore maintaining the capacity of land um, to continue to provide food in the future, especially under the impacts of climate change. Annette, the primary sources of greenhouse gases from agriculture are nitrous oxide, N2O, methane, CH4, and carbon dioxide, CO2. How can the transformation of agricultural production systems minimize these emissions? Yeah, the agriculture sector across the world does contribute substantially to the greenhouse gas emissions, uh, about 15% uh, of, of global greenhouse gas emissions. And um, and quite a substantial portion of those emissions are actually in the form of gases other than CO2. Um, so nitrous oxide is released where, from normal soil 
processes, processing of organic matter, for example, or applied nitrogen fertiliser, a portion of that is actually turned into nitrous oxide and released from the soil. And nitrous oxide is a very powerful greenhouse gas, about 300 times worse than CO2. And then another large contribution is the methane that's produced mainly from livestock, uh, ruminant livestock, but also from rice production. And um, it is about 25 to 30 times worse than CO2. So these are two very powerful greenhouse gases that make a major contribution to the agriculture sector emissions. But on the other hand, they're both a waste of resources. So I talked about the fact that uh, part of the nitrous oxide comes from nitrogen that comes from the fertiliser that you've applied. If the nitrous, nitrogen is released as nitrous oxide, then you're actually wasting part of that fertiliser. So if you can manage the nitrous oxide emissions by being more careful about when you apply the fertiliser, for example, because it's more likely in um, wet conditions that you'll, you'll um, be producing nitrous oxide. So if you avoid fertilising exactly when you're applying irrigation water, for example, you can reduce the amount of, of nitrogen you waste through nitrous oxide. And when we think about the methane, well, the methane is a natural product of the clever process that happens in the rumen of, of uh, cattle and sheep. And uh, so it's what allows them to be able to uh, turn grass into, into food. In, um, but at the same time, methane is a natural product of that. But it's also, and, and it's released by burping, by the way, in case you wondered, um, and uh, but it, it's part of the energy of the food. So if you reduce the amount of, of food that's turned into methane and then emitted by the animal, you're actually uh, preserving more of it to be built um, to be used in feeding that animal. So the animals will grow faster, in fact, if they're wasting less of their food in producing methane. So when we adopt practices that um, that reduce methane, and that's feeding forages that contain tannins, for example, that uh, reduces the methanogenesis in the rumen, um, that will actually contribute to greater productivity of the animals as well. So um, there's some good news here that we can, we can tackle this problem of greenhouse gas emissions at the same time as maintaining production of our agricultural systems. Annette, that's fascinating. I, I heard recently that in Australia there's been work done with using seaweed as a as a dietary supplement for cattle to uh, cattle and sheep to reduce methane gas emissions. Yes, this is a really exciting area of research. It's quite a new one, and it was an accidental discovery, in fact, in Canada that some cattle that were grazing close to, to the shoreline had lower methane emissions, and um, it was discovered that it was because they were eating seaweed that was washed up on the beach. And so there's been research over the last couple of years to find out what that's all about, and there are several types of red uh, macroalgae, asparagopsis in particular, that have been identified to have this phenomenal capacity to reduce the methane production. Uh, in fact, results up to 90% suppression have been found in trials. Um, it, it has to be fed on a regular basis. So it, um, you, the concept is that the seaweed would be grown in, in ponds and that then uh, it would be fed to animals, um, for example, in feedlots or uh, in dairy systems where they get a regular ration. Um, 
so it can be included in their feed and have quite large, at least 50% impact in terms of reducing methane emissions. It's not so easy to figure out how it could be applied to um, grazing animals who are out in the paddock, uh, but there's work on that too. There, there are possibilities about um, producing some sort of slow-release um, bolus that could be inserted in the rumen and, uh, and release the compound over time. Um, and there's also research into whether it might be possible to, um, to uh, have a yeast, for example, that would produce the active ingredients rather than needing to, to grow it in, in algal ponds. But um, that's the strategy at the moment, uh, that the CSIRO uh, in Australia is, is gearing up um, and looking for investors at the moment in, in producing the asparagopsis so that it can uh, contribute to this major problem of methane emissions from the agriculture sector. Does the asparagopsis also provide any nutrition for the for the ruminants? Uh, well, the amount that you have to put in the diet is actually very small, so the amount of nutrition in it would be would be really quite small. Um, but it's certain. Annette, you were speaking of um, nitrogen fertilizer and how to manage that more effectively to reduce emissions of nitrous oxide. Um, could you reflect a little bit on using alternative methods of providing nitrogen to plants, such as cover crops, and enhancing the the biota in the soil? Uh, certainly, um, the nitrous oxide emissions are highest when you're using a, a very readily available soluble fertilizer like urea, for example. Um, and so you get a great burst of nitrate being released and then um, this process that, um, that causes the release of the nitrous oxide occurring in the soil. So if, on the other hand, you're supplying the nitrogen in a less available form, so uh, for example as compost or if you're grow growing legumes in conjunction with your cereals, um, then you're getting a slower release of the, um, of the nitrate, the fixed nitrate, um, into the soil and so uh, there's less chance that it's going to be turned into nitrous oxide. So um, there's certainly strategies that can help to reduce nitrous oxide from the whole system. But we do have to recognise that um, a decomposing, um, decomposing residues will also produce nitrous oxide. So, for example, um, one of my colleagues was doing measurements because they, they put uh, chambers in the field and they, they take measurements um, of the nitrous oxide as it's been released. And initially they had static chambers and they were going out and they were taking measurements and if it had rained, rained, they'd go out to the field the next morning and extract gases from these chambers. But then they introduced uh, continuous monitoring and they found that um, if you have uh, residues in the field, so decomposing after the previous crop, and then you have rainfall, particularly if it's in summer, it's a late afternoon um, thunderstorm and the weather's quite warm, um, you actually get a really high burst of nitrous oxide uh, immediately afterwards. And so if you add up all the nitrous that's been released, um, you do find that, uh, that it is actually quite substantial from the decomposition of crop residues. So um, it's, it's not going to solve all the problems to be supplying your nitrogen in that form instead. Annette, the IPC's climate change and land report has noted that biochar could be a viable strategy to reduce emissions and sustain agricultural production, but might also pose risks to sustainability. Could you please share some insights about this with us? Yes, thanks, Noel. Um, so in case people aren't aware of biochar, biochar basically means taking organic matter, and it could be many different types of organic matter, woody residues, um, 
crop residues, even biosolids, and it means heating that organic matter up in an environment where you have limited oxygen availability. So it's essentially like charcoal making, and the product is basically charcoal. Uh, we call it biochar, though, when it's been made intentionally as a soil amendment. Uh, the concept of using biochar as a soil amendment actually came from some scientists who uh, were looking at the soils in the Amazon, and they found that some very productive soils there were um, highly impregnated with, with uh, charcoal, and they found that the Indigenous people in uh, that location had been putting charcoal into the soil and um, it was actually probably maybe their rubbish dump. It was also mixed with broken crockery and animal bones and things. And the fertility was very high in these sites with this extra charcoal there. And so the, um, the research question was, uh, if you make new charcoal and add it to soil, will you see the similar effects on the productivity? And um, many res researchers have been looking into this um, over the last maybe 20 years, and we found that uh, if you make biochar uh, in the right way and apply it um, where it can address some known soil constraints, you can get big increases in productivity. But undoubtedly, you will also stabilise the carbon because when you take um, when, you, when you take organic matter and turn it into charcoal, you make a very stable product in terms of the fact that bugs can't eat it easily. And so you're, you're taking something that would decompose within a couple of years to a decades and you're creating a, a stable product that will persist in the soil for hundreds to thousands of years, depending on what the feedstock is and what the temperature is at which you make it. So uh, take some organic matter, pyrolyze it, make biochar, um, put that in the soil, uh, you've stabilised that carbon and stopped that organic matter decomposing. But there are also some other benefits. We've found that um, in many instances it can reduce the nitrous oxide emissions. Oh, we were talking before about how um, nitrous oxide is a very powerful greenhouse gas and a waste of nitrogen. Uh, so mixing biochar with composting poultry litter, for example, stops the nitrous oxide and methane as well that are emitted during composting. It keeps more of the nitrogen in the compost and then when you apply it to the soil, less of it is released as nitrous oxide. So it increases the nitrogen use efficiency, um, helps you to retain those nutrients. Um, as I said, it, it can increase productivity if you've chosen the right type of biochar to address your soil constraints. In particular, in infertile um, acidic tropical soils, we've seen uh, big increases in agricultural production. On, on average, um, meta-analyses show 15 to 20% uh, yield increases, which and, and much higher in some instances. It also increases water holding capacity of the soil, um, so that can help uh, with drought resilience. And uh, there are some other really interesting things that it can do too. Um, Charcoal is something that's a really good absorbent. So, for example, we use it for, uh, for cleaning up water and contaminated water. But it can do the same thing in soils. So if you have soils contaminated with organics or with heavy metals, for example, um, biochar can uh, substantially reduce the uh, bioavailability of those, um, of those contaminants. And so it is very effective in, in that sense as well. Um, in relation to the IPCC's climate change and land report, um, it noted that biochar um, in the trials that have been done around the world does have these um, positive um, benefits that in terms of climate change and in terms of, of productivity. But they also noted that there could be some risks as well. Um, and 
in particular here, they're thinking of the fact that um, if everybody wants biochar, then uh, there's going to be a limit in terms of the amount of biomass that we have available to make biochar. So there could be pressure on the land. There could be deforestation, for example, to supply the biomass to make biochar. Or there could be uh, displacement of current agricultural production to grow biomass crops to make biochar. So those are the sorts of risks that were identified by the IPCC's Climate Change and Land Report in relation to biochar, but certainly also this uh, potential for it to be a significant contributor to carbon dioxide removal was also noted. Could you share with us some insights about the the, uh, the effect of the biochar on beneficial fungi and other um, biotic processes in the soil? There's been some interesting research that's shown that uh, biochar can also stimulate microbial activity in the soil. In fact, I'm, I'm working with, with a colleague who's looking at this uh, in the electron microscope and identifying what actually happens on the surface of the biochar and finding out that the interactions between um, the surfaces of the biochar, the minerals in the soil, uh, and the new organic matter that's leaking out of plant roots um, is creating this interesting, uh, they call it organomineral complex, which um, can, can actually protect the organic matter from decomposition by bugs, but it also provides a home, a habitat for the microbes. So we get a stimulation of um, microbial processes that can actually contribute to building soil carbon. Fascinating, really fascinating. Annette, the IPCC's Climate Change and Land Report advocates a number of response options throughout the food system, including a shift towards more plant-based diets. Many interpret this to mean that we should all eat less meat. But given that only 11% of the land mass is suitable for cultivation, and extensive rangeland covers much of the remaining land mass, including in your country and mine, what are your thoughts on this? Yes, uh, this is a really interesting and tricky question. It's one of these cases where there isn't a simple solution. Um, we were talking before about the fact that uh, ruminant livestock produce methane, and this is a powerful greenhouse gas. Um, and so it is true that a vegetarian diet has lower greenhouse gas emissions if you look at the life cycle or the carbon footprint of the food on your plate. Um, and the IPCC's Climate Change and Land Report that we were just talking about has uh, calculated a theoretical potential of about three to eight gigatons of CO2 um, being avoided per year through reducing or avoiding uh, red meat in the diet. But um, part of that contribution, the three to eight gigatons, actually comes from the calculations about the amount of land that is used currently for growing grain for feeding livestock. So um, there are uh, livestock production systems in, in parts of mostly the developed world that are based largely on housed livestock that eat grain that's been uh, produced often in, uh, in other continents and shipped around the planet. And so the greenhouse gas footprint of those production systems is quite high. And those animals are often eating food that could have been human food, or at least it's grown on land that could have been used to grow food for people. 
But in your country and mine, most of the livestock are actually grown uh, in paddocks. They help themselves to the grass. Uh, we were talking before about the fact that um, ruminant livestock have this clever digestive system that enables them to eat grass and produce food from that in a way that we can't. And um, as we said, only 11% of the land surface is arable. It's it able to grow crops, whereas ruminants can graze the land that can't be used for crop production because it's too steep or too dry or the soils are too fragile or it's too rocky. So uh, using ruminants to grow food for people is using more of the planet. Um, if we don't, then there'll be more concentration on our arable land for all our food production. Uh, another important point is that the food produced by ruminants, so where they eat grass and they turn it into nutrient-dense food that's very high-quality protein and a good source of iron. And so if we don't have that in our diets, then we need to supply um, pr protein from other sources, which means that we need to have a lot more um, legumes grown in our production systems and um, more attention paid to the quality of the protein and, and getting that right in people's diets to ensure that they're healthy. Of course, it is perfectly possible to have um, healthy vegetarian diets, but um, I think we need to, to think about the role of livestock in sustainable farming systems. So um, if our farming systems are all focused on continuous cropping, then we're going to have continuing land degradation um, we know that there are cover crops and, and residue retention um, that can help to, um, to reduce the rate of land degradation, but the only surefire way of increasing soil carbon is to include a pasture phase in the rotation because it, during a pasture phase you've got continuous input of organic matter into the soil and you're going to be, be building up the soil organic matter, the soil fertility through that pasture phase. If, so, therefore, um, a really sustainable farming system is one where you are integrating cropping with livestock production. Uh, the other benefits there are that the live, livestock can graze the residues, keep the weeds down, you need less herbicides. Um, livestock can be, well, it will also uh, provide fertiliser for you, so you need less, less chemical fertiliser, and they can be used for ploughing, for example, um, in different production systems. So... Um, I guess I just want to draw attention to the fact that um, there is no simple answer to this and we need to think about the whole farming system that produces the meat that we consume and look for um, the promoting the sorts of farming systems and meat products that come from sustainable farming systems. Annette, thank you so much. I think you've given us a lot of food for thought and uh, I, I like it that you ended on the note of appreciating the role of, of animals in the farming system and I think particularly ruminants and the, the contribution they make to maintaining soil fertility, not just from the, the minerals in their manure, but also the, the uh, bacteria and the other microbes that they contribute to the system. So that brings us back full circle to where we started. Um, and once again, thank you so much for contributing to our podcast. No problem. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today, Noel. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Drynet podcast series, Good Food for a Better Normal. We hope that you've found the inspiration to reinvent the ways in which we care for the land and produce, distribute and consume food. In the next episode, Dr. Jonathan Davies of IUCN unpacks opportunities for conservation through agriculture and the promise of agroecology and regenerative farming to mitigate species loss and climate change. 
transform agricultural landscapes and enhance food security. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please share the link with your colleagues, friends and family.